Alrighty, Matthew chapter four. Uh, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. That's what we're talking about today. Before we jump into that, I want to say thank you. Uh, I wanna say thank you because you have been very patient with me as I am learning how to do this, right? Uh, I'm not a professional preacher, speaker man. I, I'm one of you and I just somehow was given a microphone. Um, so I wanna say thank you. And the reason I wanna say thank you is because today is all about following Jesus. It's all about being made by him, being transformed into a fisher of men, someone partnered with him on mission, someone co-missioned by him. So my thanks to you is that you've been very gracious with me as I've done that. What I'm doing right now is me over the process of the last seven years, following Jesus, being made by him and doing something I normally wouldn't choose to do. And so I wanna point that out, not because of like, yay, Trevor, but because we, me and us, all of Life Church, us followers of Jesus in Post Falls are living out scriptural renewal right now in the midst of 2020. I know, I'm not going there, but um, you're welcome, geez. Um, But we're literally living this out right now and that is amazing. This is not for people 2000 years ago. This is for us in the United States of America. Eight years ago, me personally, eight years ago, I was anti-church. I was begrudgingly willing to admit the existence of some kind of God. Six years ago, God revealed himself to me in a way that I could not refute and I began to love him and know him. Four years ago, I walked into All of Life Church not because I believed in the church, not because I wanted to integrate with the church, but because I wanted to get closer to God and grow. I wanted to learn about God and get fed and grow. So I walked into All of Life Church. And then all of a sudden, um, through the last five years, both myself and my wife, Whitney, like through living life with All of Life Church, our church family, we have been helped in following Jesus. We've been disciples of him who have been made through relationship with him into fishers of men, where all of a sudden I find myself up here. Five years ago, I would not have imagined it. Eight years ago, I would have laughed at you. So again, this is not about Trevor, this is about us. And the reason that I'm excited about this is because I think not just of me, but I think about you. And I realized that eight years ago, I would have literally laughed at you if you told me I was preaching God's word. Four years ago, I wouldn't have even wanted to do it. And so I realized that you guys probably are in one of those places. You might be in a place right now where you begrudgingly admit the existence of some form of God, but you're curious enough to be here to get to know him. Or you, you love him, you have a relationship with him, but you just wanna get fed and you wanna grow. But you don't really know what that looks like. You might not know Christ's love for his family called the church just yet. And so my excitement is for you that you might not even know it yet, but you are in the process of being transformed by him into a fisher of men. It will not, probably not look like this. It might not. Maybe it looks like discipling children in your home. Maybe it looks like leading kids' classes. Maybe it looks like youth ministry. Maybe it looks like baking pumpkin pie for your neighbors. But you will be a light that represents Jesus in the world, fishing for men. And you probably don't even know it just yet. And you might think it's for someone else. It's for these guys, but it's not for you, but it's not. All of us are invited to follow Jesus, be made by him into fishers of men. So my thanks to you is that you're patient with me as I learn how to do this. And my reminder to you is you're on the journey of being made by him and it'll feel like you need to apologize to the people around you, but that means you're on the right track because you're figuring it out. So let's dive headfirst into Matthew chapter four. We are in verses 18 through 22. So we're in Matthew chapter four, verses 18 through 22. So I'm just gonna read this. 
and then we'll go in. So Jesus, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. And going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And they were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and Jesus called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So we can see pretty clearly, like this is a simple passage. Jesus is walking by Galilee. He sees a couple of guys in a boat and he says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they join him. He sees two more men down the road and he says, follow me, they join him, right? So that is really the main thrust and what we're gonna be exploring. Now, before I just tell you all about this and what you should think, um, I want to just kind of remind all of us that uh, at Olive Life Church, we very much believe that our job is not just to tell you what the Bible says, but our job is to help you understand the Bible and enjoy it yourself. Our job is to equip you, not just to tell you. And so I'm gonna spend about 10 minutes equipping you, and then we're gonna go through this with some of those tools together, okay? All right, so first thing that we always wanna remember anytime we approach the Bible is authorial intent. What is the person who wrote this section trying to get us to believe? What do they want us to understand? If you come to any conclusion that was not intended to be there, it means you've come to a misunderstanding, right? And so we always wanna understand what was this person trying to get us to think? So a couple of tools to help us do that. The big uh, clue that we're using today, and then I'm gonna give you some tools for how to engage with that clue. The big clue is um, what I call tensions and voids, or much more better, and I'll explain this, the wait what. So here's how this works. Um, within Matthew, and, or any, uh, honestly, much of scripture, you'll read it, and there will be tension inside of that passage. It, some things won't quite jive. You won't really know what to do with it. Or you'll find tension internally. You'll be like, I don't know what I do with this. This makes me kind of uncomfortable. I don't know if I believe this. This is hard to understand. So you'll feel tension or you'll feel a void. You'll feel like, hey, there's, it feels like there's something that should be here. There's more detail. There's more story. Something feels like it's missing. There's not enough information. So there'll be tension either in the text or inside of you, or there'll be a void, a feel, what feels like a, a gap in information in the, the written word. And there can be a bunch of different ways to deal with that. But what I want to point out is there's two main purposes, two functions that tension and voids serve. They serve to lead you towards discovery or towards reflection. So oftentimes, the writers will leave in things that feel like this, that leave you unsettled so that you go on a process of inquiring about them. This is a, an Eastern teaching technique. Uh, here in the West, we like to tell you, here's what I'm going to tell you, now let me tell you, and now let me tell you what I told you. Because you need to sit here and just like, let me, let, let me tell you what to think. Um, Eastern train of thought much more believes in the power of discovery that you, you hold on to and you understand things that you've come to find out for yourself. Think of a science project. The reason we like have kids like drop eggs off of roofs and like play with Bunsen burners is because we wanna lead them in a process of discovery where they know what gravity is is for themselves. We don't tell them about gravity and eggs falling. We say, hey, here's an egg, drop it, see what happens. And then they go, oh, gravity, that's how that works, right? It's a process of discovery. So tension or voids can force you to engage in a process of discovery. So it's not that something's been uh, forgotten, it's that someone's wanting you to lean into it. So that's tensions and then voids. Um, voids can lead you towards reflection. 
So if it's not there, you can either look for something within the text that answers it, but if it's just not there, maybe it's meant to ask, make you just go, oh, I don't know. Like, what do I do with that? We're gonna engage with that here and you'll understand it more, so I'm gonna move on. Um, but I want you to remember the wait what? Tensions and voids and discovery and reflection. So here's what a wait what looks like. A wait what is basically when you come across tension or voids and it, it goes like this. Walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Wait, what? <laughs> Does that make sense? Wait, huh? Immediately, why did, going from there and then immediately they follow, that's weird. That's a wait what? You just experienced a wait what? That was attention and a void. So um, as we're about to go through some of these tools, you have these scriptural journals. In the front, there are a couple of blank pages somewhere. And then also in the rear are a couple of these like notes pages. Let's see, kind of like this. I would encourage you with, to start writing down some of these tools in here. Just write down like my biblical toolbox. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, so write down authorial intent, tensions and voids. And then I'm about to give you four quick tools for how to engage with tensions and voids. What I like to call the wait what's. Okay, so first tool. When you go, wait, what? You pause. Step number one is to pause and consider. Just like chill out, settle down and look. Look for contextual, contextual clues. Think back, what has the author been talking about? What's he been telling you about? What are the themes he's developing? And those will often answer your questions and hesitations. So step number one, pause. Step number two, look at what has come before, right? We're in Matthew chapter four. Wait, what? Oh, okay, chapter two, chapter three. Oh, okay, right? So go back, look at what themes are being developed, what conversations are being had, and then bring those to where you're at. Number three, keep reading. Right? This is an introduction. It's not meant to make sense. It's meant to get you curious enough to keep reading. And so you have a question. If you can't solve it based on what's right there, go back and then go forward. Just keep reading and it'll probably answer your question. Number four, use cross-references. Right? So uh, within all throughout the beginning of Matthew, we've been reading Old Testament um, references, Old Testament prophecies. In little three-sentence chunks, they don't make a lot of sense. They don't have much meaning. If you cross-reference those and go to the book that they came from and you, and you start to inquire, what was that prophet actually telling us about God? How does that connect to Matthew? All of a sudden, it starts to become much more deep and much more meaningful. So there's, um, within cross-references, the way I kind of think about it is there's two main kinds. You have this biblical timeline, right? You got like, we're going, going, we're in the Old Testament, bam, Micah, chapter, Matthew chapter two refers to Micah. And now we're keep going, and bam, now we're in Matthew. So Matthew chapter two and Micah cross-reference to each other. That's what I call an adjacent cross-reference. So they're kind of two different places. You also have on the biblical timeline, you're kind of like moving, 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 and like bam, you got Luke and Matthew simultaneously. They're telling this two different stories of the exact same thing. So both authors are referring to the exact same events, but they're doing it a little bit differently. So you have these like parallel cross-references, they're right next to each other, and you have these adjacent cross-references where you have something over here connected to something over here. Today, we're gonna to be referring about uh, Luke chapter five, which is a parallel, right? Luke is telling us the exact same moment in historical time. Um, so write down somewhere Luke chapter five. I'm not actually gonna read it to you, but I want you to go read it because it's really interesting. Um, okay, wait what? We're gonna read this one more time and we're gonna just pay attention for your internal wait what moment, okay? 
I'm gonna give you a few seconds. I won't ask you to say it out loud, but I'm gonna give you a few seconds to read this with me and just listen, like pay attention to the internal parts of you that are reading and go like, wait, what? While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. They were mending their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Think about your own personal wait what moments in here. Big clue for your wait what's. If you're just kind of like breezing through, you're probably not gonna have any wait what's. <laughs> if you're like reading and have 15 minutes where you're just kind of undisturbed, you'll probably have some pretty good wait what's. Um, okay, step number one, pause and consider. I'm gonna consider what is here, what are my personal wait what's, what questions arrive. When I go, wait, what? What does he mean by that? I have three within this passage that we're gonna base the rest of our time together on. So the first one is my question that kind of like my personal wait what is, wait, what? Why did they follow him? He says, follow me. And they go, yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> Either that's non-historical or there's something actually interesting that's happening. So why did they follow him and what compelled them? The second question, because I grew up within the church and so I know all about Jesus and the 12 disciples and so I'm, I'm starting to be curious, like, oh, like, okay, so here's Andrew, Peter, James, and John. Like, where are the other eight? There's 12 of them, right? Because I'm reading, it's like, oh, he calls the disciples, and now all of a sudden he's teaching for four chapters. Where are the rest of the disciples? So I, I have a personal curiosity, where are the other 12? Third question I have is, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Like, what does it mean when Jesus says, follow me? What is he actually asking of them? Is he just saying like, hey, fishing isn't that lucrative, jump on board with me? Or is there something more to that? There's no explanation of follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. It's one sentence. So what does that mean? I'm curious. So those are my three questions. Why did they follow him? Where are the other 12? And what does it mean to follow? Okay, second tool when for answering the question, why did they follow him and what compelled them? We're gonna use tool number two, looking at what has come before. Okay, so really quickly, uh, Matthew chapter one and two, right? We're gonna kind of go backwards. Matthew chapter one and two in two sentences is this telling that Jesus is the promised king. All these Old Testament prophecies are pointing to this point in time with this man. And Matthew is connecting us to that promise. Jesus is the promised king. Through his virgin birth, we see that Jesus is the son of God, or at the very least, some sort of divine um, What's it called when babies get conceived? There you go, conceived, that's the word. Some sort of divine, <laughs> some sort of divine conception at the very least. We also see that Jesus is given the title Emmanuel, which means God with us. In chapters three and four, we see the stories where um, we see Jesus's interactions with John the Baptist. We also see Jesus's interactions with Satan. We see that Jesus has unprecedented spiritual authority. This is a guy who does one-on-one -on -one combat with Satan and walks out victorious. So we see that Jesus comes representing the kingdom, right? Chapters one and two, he's God with us. He's representing the kingdom. We see that he has um, unprecedented spiritual authority. So those little things alone, if we've read chapters one through four with um, eyes half open, we now come to the point where we see these men responding to Jesus and we can connect. If there was 
a divinely conceived man of God who has unprecedented spiritual authority. And he went up to a group of men and said, follow me. Would there be something particularly unique that would cause those men to respond? So we don't have a moment by moment retelling, right? Matthew one through four does not tell us what happened, but it's in line with these themes that are developing that Jesus is God with us. He has unique spiritual authority. There's something different that people are responding to that makes a lot of sense. And so I think, again, this is a journey of discovery, right? Matthew has left us tension here. And by looking, we go, oh, there was something unique that Jesus brought to the table. There's probably more there, right? There's a story there, but there's something about Jesus that was different that these men responded to, right? So we're learning through a process of discovery, but there's also a void, right? The reflection part. We've discovered there's something special about Jesus, but we're also reflecting. I believe, you know, this, this is just kind of like my personal thoughts as I read this. I believe there's intentionally a void because the author of this wants us to begin considering what would make me follow? If Matthew only told us this happened and then the men responded this way, you would never ask yourself, well, what about me? If, some, if Jesus showed up and said, follow me, what would make me respond with immediate following where I was captivated? So I believe this void is both leading us to discover and to reflect. Number four, tool number four cross-references, right? I talked about Luke and Matthew. Uh, so we're not gonna read Luke today, but I want you to write it down because it's really interesting um, because it's just a fun comparison. Luke chapter five um, covers the next section, or excuse me, parallels this passage. Now, anytime you're looking at cross-references, it might feel like there are contradictions between the two. Uh, if you read Luke chapter five, you're gonna notice that Jesus has met these men before. This is not the first time meeting him. In Matthew, it feels like he kind of walks up and it's like, hey, follow me. Um, but they've actually met before and Luke tells us about that. And so um, it can feel as though Luke and Matthew are different because of poor fact management. There's contradictions because they just kind of messed up. They are legitimate contradictions. But uh, what I want to point out is that it's a difference in authorial intent. Matthew is wanting us to ask about these men. What compelled them? What would make me compelled to follow Jesus? He's asking us to go on a journey of discovery. What is it about Jesus that made these men respond this way? Luke is approaching it a little bit differently. He's telling us what happened, not because it's any less valid, it's any less important, because he has a different intention. So Matthew's intention just, and this isn't like a commentary told me this, this is just like based on the way it's written, I can see that he's wanting us to lean into something. And so Matthew is wanting us to ask about this situation. Luke is telling us about this situation. So not contradictions, just difference in intentions. Okay, that's the first question. Um, what compelled them to follow him? Um, and I'm gonna ask you at the very end of today at the benediction, I'm gonna kind of point you in a different direction for learning about following Jesus a little bit more, um, but I'm gonna keep moving. And I'll get back to that later. My next question, where are the other eight? Like, where are the total of the 12 apostles? Uh, so really quickly, fun exercise, um, throw out for me a chapter between one and wherever you think Matthew ends. Um, throw out a chapter number that where you think is the point where Jesus has collected all 12 apostles. 17. 6, 28. Okay, I'll give you the answer. 
And this whole like apostles, where are the 12? This is really just like, for me, it's kind of quirky and it's, it's fun to like engage with scripture and like look for answers myself. And I wanna share that with you. It's not because this is particularly relevant. Uh, so by chapter four, right? We see that Matthew has four disciples or four of the 12 apostles, um, Andrew, Peter, James, and John. We has four. Now between chapters five and eight, it's primarily just teaching. He's telling us all about the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter nine, we see Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector, likely the man who wrote this passage of scripture. Um, and then in chapter 10, Jesus is lamenting. He's saying, the harvest is ripe. There's all these confused and lost people, but there are no workers for the kingdom of God to save them. And he's lamenting that. And then in Matthew chapter 10 is when he calls and elects his 12 apostles out of a very large crowd of disciples. There's a large crowd of followers and men that are following him and that are disciples. And Jesus elects 12 that he names apostles in that moment. And in that moment, seven of those men have no backstory. We have no idea who they are. There's no previous mention of them in Matthew. All of a sudden Jesus says, and these are the guys I choose. And we have very little mention of them after that point. Much of our knowledge of those men is actually through church tradition and the rest of the New Testament. So that's just kind of an interesting thing for you. Where are the other 12? It is chapter four, chapter nine, and chapter 10. And it's actually much less interesting than you'd think. Okay, third question. What does it mean to follow? This is where we're spending the rest of our time. What does it mean to follow Jesus? When he says, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. What does he mean? So to help us think through that, I'm gonna break it into three steps. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. So big first one, follow me. This is the definition of disciple. Um, R.T. France is a commentator and scholar um, in Greek and follow me when it is translated literally means come behind me. And um, in this particular cultural moment, right? This is a, a Jewish culture. These men would have understood that this was the language of a rabbi and his followers or his disciples. A rabbi was a Jewish teacher and scholar and a, a master of men. And their followers would have been called disciples. And we don't really see the word rabbi much in Matthew. Um, we actually see it really frequently in Mark and John as his disciples are referring to Jesus as rabbi, as teacher. We see it all the time in Mark and John. But remember, Matthew wants to see Jesus as primarily king. So he's not gonna use the word rabbi very much. He wants to use the word king very often. So, but uh, Jesus is a rabbi. And so we're understanding in that language. So, right, we, this makes sense to us. A lot of us say, oh, I am a follower of Jesus. I am a disciple of Jesus. So disciples walked in the way they emulated their master. Uh, there's a quote up here by Bruner in one of his commentary. And I think it just is really clear. He says, um, following means, quote, these men were being called to accept Jesus as their rabbi or their teacher. In rabbinic tradition, being the disciple or a follower of a teacher was more than just attending an advanced set of courses. Follow me meant in rabbinic speech, become my students, be apprenticed to me, join my school, live with me. Students lived with their rabbis and they did not merely hear their lectures. This means you'd be like, your roommate would be your college professor. It was more than about the, tr the academic transfer of knowledge. There was something more you were investing yourself in. 
So uh, just to explain that a touch further, the understanding of this like rabbi, disciple, or a master follower relationship was, um, it was about a lot more than an academic education, uh, right? Rabbis were um, within Jewish tradition and Jewish culture, uh, or excuse me, Jewish culture is a religious society, right? This is where um, the, the, there's no separation of church and state. The state is the church. And so these um, rabbis were teaching these young men or women how to live. They were teaching them about their understanding of the story of God. They're telling them this is who God is, how he has created us as humanity, as humans to be. God has given us the best ways of living. And so these teachers were teaching all of these. They were modeling firsthand the ethics of God's kingdom in both personal life and society. Remember, Jewish society, it's a religious society. And so these religious teachers were the leaders. These were the men that were the judges, the leaders, the elders. They had the religious background and the knowledge to shape a society towards God. Obviously, we know the history of Israel is very fraught with disaster and mismanagement of this authority, but that's the intention. So Jesus' disciples, this is important because Jesus is saying, I am a rabbi, be my disciple, follow me. I will teach you about my understanding of God. I will teach you about what it means to be in his society, what it means to live with him. Come with me, get behind me. Let me show you what that looks like. It was much more than just an academic transfer of knowledge. It was follow me and take on my way of living and thinking. So um, JT English um, has a quote in his book, Deep Discipleship, that sums this all up so beautifully. It's one sentence. Discipleship is not just the transfer of ideas, but the transformation of the whole person. You're transforming your whole self around the person you are following. You are not just getting their ideas, you are becoming like them. So following for us, follow me, is being willing to come behind our teacher, Christ. There's humility. There's a willingness to have to leave our previous ways of thinking, our previous ways of being, our previous ways of acting, We need to reconsider the big and the small portions of our mental space, as well as our physical routines. Jared Lida, (laughs) quoting someone else, (laughs) told me, uh, discipleship is more than behavior modification. It is deep transformation. I will make you. Follow me and I will make you. This is our ongoing discipleship, where the power and the momentum for our transformation comes from. Bruner, again, uh, just says this really clearly. Quote, Jesus calls people to himself. Follow me, follow me. He calls them to a continuous walk with him rather than a single act towards him. Jesus is stressing the continuity and the means Live a life following me. Not make a one-time decision that now you're safe and I won't burn you with hellfire, but live a life following me every day. And so here I see the progressional thought of Jesus, right? Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. We see it goes in that order. Follow me first, live your life in a way that is following me and I will make you into a fisher of men. It is not follow me, by being fishers of men. Prove your following to me by being fishers of men. It's follow me first. Let me transform you and I will make you a fisher of men. 
So following Jesus, I wanna just, um, this is not in the text, but I think it is all throughout scripture, is that following Jesus is a relational way of living first. It's a relational transformation first and foremost. The language that Jared used last week, this kind of like royal language, is that we participate in the kingdom of God through everyday open-heartedness to the king. We don't participate in the kingdom of God only through our outward actions and our morality. We participate in the kingdom of God through our open-heartedness to the king. We follow him and then he transforms us into something new. We live daily open-hearted, open-heartedly towards our king, towards our teacher, towards our master. It's through that open-heartedness that we are transformed. Now, I wanna ask you this, or excuse me, point out that we know that relational transformation is how Jesus does this because I think we can just look at the human heart and understand that that's how God has designed us. What does your heart need? What does your heart need to be deeply transformed? Does it need a reminder of what you should be doing? Does it need morality of what you should and should not do? Does that transform your heart? It can probably clean you up quite a bit. Social pressure does amazing things, um, but it doesn't transform your heart into something new. In John chapter 15, this is from Jesus's mouth. It's his own teaching. John chapter 15, he says, whoever abides or rests or remains in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Again, notice, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Abide in me, then you will bear fruit. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide, rest, remain in my love. Quick example, this happened this morning. As, this is my example to you of how relational transformation occurs. I woke up this morning and I was doing my morning stretches and I was going through my sermon notes and I was thinking like, okay, what are we gonna cover? Yep, Jesus, follow me. And then there's this thing that I was talking about and I'm going through and I'm literally like adding things to my notes because I thought my sermon wasn't good enough and I was really nervous about what you were gonna think and I wasn't sure how it was gonna turn out and am I gonna talk too long again and then people are gonna be mad at me more and so <laughs> I'm getting all nervous about this and I'm laying on the floor doing my stretches and I just remembered like, Trevor, follow me. My job is to make a daily choice to open my heart to the king and abide in his love and be transformed. Follow me first. Don't put fisher of men before follow me, right? Kind of fisher of men stuff. Don't put fisher of men as the priority. Follow me first. That's your priority. Let me transform you and then you'll preach well, right? And so I just like, it, like God, I'm making this like all about me and if I do a good enough job. I'm worried what my performance is gonna be like, what people will think. I'm worried about fixing everyone's hearts in 20 minutes. I'm not trusting you that you are their king. You are the one that they're being called to follow. It's not follow Trevor, it's follow Jesus, Father, let me just like proclaim you in good news. Give me clear language. This is all about you. Let me follow you first and primarily. Let me be humble at your knees. Two minutes later, I didn't care about y'all. I was just excited to talk about Jesus. Um, but in all seriousness, like that, what happened in that moment because I was willing to live an open-hearted, abiding relationship with Jesus? Did I become a person of anxiety? in peer pressure, or did I become a person of freedom and confidence in Christ? 
I took a step towards becoming a person confident in Christ because I lived an open-hearted relationship abiding in the love of my king. It was not, I had to be reminded of morality. I had to be reminded that you are his and I am his and I just get get up here and talk about his goodness. And this is not gonna be sufficient. And all of a sudden, I'm not a person of anxiety. I'm a person of freedom. And so that is literally, my heart is being made into something new simply through relational trust. That's it. No discipline, no morality. All I had to do was go, God, if I just abide in you and trust you, I've all of a sudden become more free. That's it. And I'm gonna speak better and more clearly because all I did was say, I trust you. Thank you for loving me. Your love for me is not based on my preaching. Relational transformation. That's my point in that. I was transformed through simply relationally opening my heart to the king. Not follow and be. Don't follow me, be a fisher of men. Follow me, let me make you a fisher of men. Fishers of men though is important. This is a primary part of Jesus's plan. Bruner, again, this guy's rocking it. Quote, Jesus did not just come, teach here and there, work some miracles, die, and then rise. He came and he made disciples. In Matthew's gospel, one of Jesus's important services is to create a ministry of workers by which to shape his church to engage the world. Jesus did not come, teach here and there, work miracles, die and rise. He made disciples. That was a primary purpose that he came for. At All of Life, we talk about this all the time. We want to be disciples who make disciples. The way that Jesus shapes his church and the world is through his commissioned followers, those who partner with him on mission. He he specifically planted churches and made disciples. That was how he chose to embody his society, his kingdom here on earth. Like I said at the very beginning, here's where this is exciting. This is happening in our church. This is happening. So this is your story too. Remember, this is your story. Following Jesus, you are being made into an effective fisher of men. It will look very different from you, but it should happen. It's a natural progression. So your, your own unique gifting, your own personality, your own spheres of influence, you also will contribute in being a fisher of men. You will be someone who makes disciples. You will be a disciple-making disciple in your spheres of influence with your skill set and personality. You guys ready for the good news? Follow me is liberating. It is really stinking good news. This is not a box that you have to live in. This is really exciting. When Jesus says, follow me, he's not asking you to constrain yourself. He's not asking you to constrain yourself to your image of what it means to follow him. Because that image, for me at least, is very both unrealistic, it's very self-glorifying. I look really good when I follow him the way I think I should. It's also really boring and it's really unattainable. It's very two-dimensional. Jesus is not saying, follow your image of what it means to be my disciple. And through that image of being my disciple, I will transform you into something new. He's saying, follow me. Daily, open-hearted, following of me. Not an image, not something unrealistic, not the grandmaster plan in your one hour per day discipleship program. Follow me. Not an image, follow me. 
Following Jesus does not mean using him. It's not saying when Jesus says, follow me, he's not saying, let me follow you and just give you a boost through life, right? He's saying, get behind me, let me show you the way. So it does not mean using him to become a Christian superstar. (laughs) Through human history, we all know this. Many humans have used Jesus. They've told Jesus, get behind me and push me through life and let me manipulate and inform people around me. Many people have used a version of God for their own self-destructive ends. Following Jesus then, by getting behind him is actually being saved from our own mismotivations. If we ask Jesus to get behind us, likely we're gonna go off in a pretty weird and self-destructive direction. If we are willing to get behind Jesus and humble ourselves, we're gonna go in a very good direction. So following Jesus does not mean you get to be a, a spiritual superstar does not mean it has to be boring and unattainable, but what it does mean is that you get to live in personal intimacy with the creator king. You get to live in personal intimacy with the creator king, the one who says, abide in my love, rest in me. He created the cosmos. He rules with grace and righteousness. He will call all that is evil to accountability and he invites you into personal safety with him. It means, following Jesus means that you have a guide that is trustworthy. He is a source of tangible ways of living as well as spiritual renewal. Following Jesus, this is really good news, unless you're a planner. Following Jesus means you are only responsible for one step at a time. Jesus did not go to the men on the boat and say, follow me. We're gonna go for two or three years. I'm gonna heal some folks. You might see me glorified on a mountain somewhere and then I'm gonna die, but don't worry, here's what's gonna happen. He says, follow me. And then they're along for this really incredible, terrifying ride. But ultimately, it's a beautiful one. Lastly, so following Jesus is really great because you get personal intimacy with the creator king. You have a guide that's trustworthy. He's a tangible source of goodness in your life. You're only responsible for one step at a time. You don't need to have the master discipleship plan. And following Jesus means you get to participate in his kingdom through everyday open-heartedness to the king. That's it. Be willing to listen and follow him. Don't follow an image, follow him. And I guarantee you that is neither boring nor unattainable. So in conclusion, following Jesus comes with a cost. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and they followed him. Following Jesus does come with a cost. They left, these men had to leave their father, their family ties. They had to leave their business, all of those skills that they had developed and invested in, all of their inheritance, They had to leave their home, all that was comfortable and familiar. They had to leave their nets, their ways of providing for themselves. Again, last week, we used this royal language, no personal kingdoms. They had to give up their personal kingdoms. They had to humble themselves. They had to say, my way is not best. They had to humble themselves behind a new teacher. Again, the kingly language we used last week, the prerequisite for the kingdom of God no personal kingdoms. There's a cost to this. But I believe that is dwarfed by the cost of not following Jesus. If the cost of following him means you need to give up 
your boat, your nets, your family. You have to give up your personal kingdom. There's also the cost of not following him. Now with that, there's kind of two two big ways that I kind of think of it. There's like this divine eternal sense. And that's very legitimate, right? If there's any sense of righteousness or justice in the world, it has to come from God. And we want to be on the right side of loving relationship with him when it comes to eternity. But I know for me, like that's really hard for me to grasp. And it's really easy for us to kind of dismiss as religious rhetoric. And so I want to focus on something more tangible and temporal. So here's something else for us to consider. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says this, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. There's a paraphrase of the Bible. Um, A man named Eugene Peterson puts it into his own words. It's called the message. And I just find it's really helpful for us to kind of wrap our brains around that. And it's going to be on the screen. This is Jesus's invitation. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. You will recover your life. I will show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy nor ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. So the cost of not following Jesus means you will follow someone else. I know for me, if I am not following Jesus, I will follow our larger cultural shifts and trends. I will follow the times that we're living in, times of fear and divisiveness, time where truth is your own opinion, times where everyone is out to get you. If you look around us, we see that these momentary trends that we are tempted to follow are deeply forming us. They are deeply forming our culture. Many of us feel burned out. We feel simultaneously in debt and dissatisfied. I almost took this next sentence out because it feels really weird, but for whatever reason, I left it. Maybe you feel so busy you can't enjoy the smell of your children's hair. Makes me want to cry, even though it's arbitrary and kind of weird. Anyways, maybe you feel like you're in a dead end. Maybe you feel burdened. Maybe you're ashamed of your last outburst. Maybe you feel like people know an image of you, but they don't really know you. They know a version of you, the one you present, but they don't know you. That is the direction of our cultural time. And if you are not following Jesus, the one who says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion of your own making or of someone else's? Come to me, get away with me. You will recover your life. I will show you how to rest, walk with me, work with me, watch me, let me show you. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Keep company with me. You'll learn to live freely and lightly. As we close, I wanna address the burden of should. Uh, I grew up in a church 
I grew up that it was um, expected that you follow Jesus and go to college. And so it's easy for me to think, well, I just should follow Jesus because that's what's right. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's what good people do is they follow Jesus and they really kick, like they knock that thing out of left field. They just follow Jesus so good. That's what you should do. It's easy for my heart to go there. And I want to combat that, that potentially following Jesus is a lot more than should. Potentially following Jesus is good. That it's a decision that you will come to without any external pressure. And I, we're about to move into an Advent season and we're gonna do a different teaching series. And part of me just so badly wants to keep going in Matthew because I'm like hungry to know who Jesus is. Who is this man that's inviting me to follow him? What is he inviting me to join him on? What does it look like to follow him? Why would I choose to follow him? The good news is your discipleship is not only on Sunday mornings. (laughs) Your following of Jesus is every day. And at the benediction, I'll give you some tools for how to do that, okay? So my hope in all of this is that we all walk away desiring to follow Jesus, but it's, about, it's more than like a motivational speaker, like, yeah, we're gonna follow Jesus. But it's really like a sincere curiosity for you to ask, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Not, not go do better at the image of following Jesus, but what does it mean to follow Jesus? That you will have a curiosity and Matthew will create tension in you that sends you on a journey of discovery for who he really is. That it will cause you to reflect on what you believe when you follow Jesus and what you actually are being invited on. With that, would you pray with me? I'm gonna invite the worship crew up and then we're gonna take communion. Father, um, Father, I repent. I turn away from following my image of you. I repent from the shoulding of following you, that I just should, that you don't have something inherent in you that's compelling enough to call me, but that I just have to. Um, Lord, would you just like reimagine in my own spirit what it means to follow you? Help me to see um, in these pages in Matthew, of your word, what it means to follow you not a discipleship book, though those are helpful, but what it means to follow you personally. You're a good father, you're a good king, you're a good teacher. You take away the burden of the world and you give us a third way of living. That's not hiding from the world nor fighting the world, but being with you through it. God, we love you. Amen. Here is my tool for you. Um, Following Jesus means knowing him personally and reconsidering. What does it mean to follow him and not just our cultural image of following him? And so the tool that I wanna give you are two things. The first one is Dwell, the audio Bible. We have purchased a church license. This is free to you. And it is the best, most superb audio Bible I've ever encountered. And my gift or like why I'm bringing this up is not so you have to, but I realize like many of us have a hard time reading. And also um, there's this beautiful thing where as we engage Jesus, it's in his teachings, it's not just like an in-depth study. It's like a a large exposure. You can listen to the entirety of Matthew in two hours and 45 minutes. So maybe that's three days riding to and from work. Maybe that's as you cook breakfast, but just listen to the whole thing and just consider like, who is Jesus? What is he asking these men to follow? 
what values would I be excited to take on or what values would I be nervous to give up if I followed him? So that's the first tool, is just listen to dwell. Uh, if you wanna get it through our free church access, go to our church website and there's under resources, there's a link. You can get dwell and it'll get you some free access. Um, the second tool I wanna give you is gospel communities. Um, our church has been not doing this very well for about a year. Uh, we got pretty disoriented and haven't been doing a good job of inviting us into small group gospel communities in homes. And so this is not the magic Jesus time that teaches you everything, but this is an opportunity for you to be with other real life men and women who are curious and they want to know what it means to follow Jesus. So it's not a time just to tell each other how to follow Jesus. It's a time to discover and reflect together what it means. So maybe that's not available for you right now. It's kind of holidays coming up, but maybe it's after January. Maybe you give yourself to meeting with a group of people and saying, hey, we're in Matthew and we're gonna be in Matthew for quite a while. Like, let's consider together. What does it mean for us to follow him? So I would encourage you on your own, listen to dwell and or read Matthew. And I would encourage you, I think you'll get the most traction and the most perspective on following him by doing it with other followers of Jesus, okay? So those are my two things and I believe they will bless you, right? There's my blessing. Um, you guys are fishers of men. You are following Jesus. You are being transformed into fishers of men. So go work that out. It's gonna feel like you need the patience of the people around you as you figure that out, but you are doing it. And that is amazing. Literally looking at your faces, I can say, I see how you are fishing for men. Probably feels really insignificant, but it's happening. With that church, I love you. God loves you. You are sent. Goodbye.